Christchurch, New Malden, 23rd of February, 2020, 6.30 service. David Lofman speaking in the series, Titles for Jesus, Son of God. So, there's a Jewish story of a good Yiddish mother saying goodbye to her eldest son on his first day of school. At the front door, she gives him one final hug and says, so, little Bubbler, I'm going to miss you so much. Bubbler, do you have your lunchbox and an apple for your teacher? Little Bubbler, do you have your pencils and your notebook? She makes sure his coat buttons are done up tight, squeezes him one last time, saying, oh, my sweet little Bubbler, I'm going to wait here all day till you come back. Bye-bye. And off he goes to school. When he comes home at the end of the day, she's standing at the front door and welcomes him in. Ah, oh, my little bubbler, welcome home. Give me your coat and your satchel, bubbler. Did you have a good day? She gives him a big hug and asks, So, did you get on with the other children, bubbler? And did you give your teacher the apple? My sweet little bubbler. What did you learn today? The boy says, I learned, Mama, that my name isn't Bubbala, it's Joshua. <laughs> Being the firstborn son of a Jewish family, you made her feel special. Mummy's little Bubbala. But that isn't always easy. For me, when I was a boy growing up as the firstborn son in a Jewish family, I was my mum's little bubbler, and it came with some benefits. Sunday dinner, for example, at my grandparents' flat meant I got served second, and I got some of the best pieces of meat. But when I grew up, I realised being the eldest son also came with responsibilities. Some clear and simple, other responsibilities unspoken. When my parents' marriage began to break up, I felt a very powerful feeling, a kind of an urge, really. As the firstborn son, I had a responsibility to fix their marriage and bring them back together again. But I failed. After a while, they separated permanently. But while they were living together, I felt the stress and anxiety of living in a family that was breaking up overwhelming. Somehow, I think, it made me ill. I think it triggered a chronic disease. I'm still living with it. I wrote a haiku about it years ago. Here it is. The struggle to keep my parents together almost killed me. Another way a Jewish son is made to feel special is when he has a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah is a ceremony that marks a boy's transition from boy to man. The boy reads a portion of the Torah publicly during a Sabbath morning service. He reads it in front of a normal congregation along with family and invited guests. When it was my turn to read, I remember the rabbi called me out from the congregation with the words, David, 
ben Mordechai. It means David, son of Martin, my father's name. I think that was the only time I've ever been called in that way. This act of being called out and identified in relation to your father, I think is incredibly important in Judaism. It's a public declaration, acknowledging the son as the rightful heir to his father's property. It declares to everyone the lineage of the son. So when Jesus is described by various people as the son of God, they are proclaiming Jesus's lineage. They are accepting him as the heir to his father's kingdom. However, Jesus isn't the only person given this title in the Bible. Old Testament scriptures uh, show that other people have this title as well. Oh, we're going to get there. For example, in the book of Job, chapter 2, it describes angels coming to show themselves to God, along with Satan. Angels are described as sons of God. Another reference to the Son of God comes in Luke's Gospel. He describes Adam, the first man, as the Son of God. And in the book of Exodus, in chapter 4, God refers to the Israelite slaves in Egypt as his firstborn son. There are other examples where people are called the Son of God in the Old Testament. I've put some of them on the screen behind me. Not that you can read them. Very small, sorry. In these scriptures, these sons of God sometimes act on behalf of God. Sometimes God delegates authority to them. In some ways, they represent God. They do God's will. They take action and fulfill God's law. But in the hands of the gospel writers, the title, Son of God, refers exclusively to Jesus. Jesus never uses the title Son of God to refer to himself. Ruth showed us two weeks ago that Jesus uses the title Son of Man for himself. Jesus here is emphasising his humanity when using that title. But the title Son of God is different. By contrast, this title emphasises Jesus' divinity. It's also making clear Jesus' lineage and his status as heir to the kingdom of God. The Gospels record a variety of occasions when Jesus is proclaimed the Son of God. This includes God, and on another occasion by demons, and even the devil himself. Here's some examples on the screen. Not that you can read them because they're rather small. Thank you, Hazel. <laughs> I think what is interesting about Martha's and Peter's declaration, they're not up there yet, of Jesus being the Son of God, 
and the accusations of the chief priests is that all of them combine Jesus' sonship to God with another title, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Saviour of his people. As Jesus travels to Bethany to comfort Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus, Martha rushes up and meets Jesus on the road. They talk about Lazarus's sickness and his death and Jesus's late arrival. Eventually, Martha declares, racked with grief for Lazarus's death, frustrated perhaps at Jesus's lateness, and yet filled with faith in Jesus. She declares in John chapter 11, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who is to come into the world. And when Jesus asks Peter in Matthew chapter 16 who he thinks Jesus is, Peter immediately responds, You are the Messiah the son of the living God. Peter also combines both titles in relation to Jesus. Peter acknowledges Jesus's lineage. This man Jesus is acting on behalf of God. He believes as Martha believes that Jesus is doing God's will. Jesus is the heir to God's kingdom. And Peter also accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Saviour of his people. This was a radical idea. Everyone knew a Messiah would come, but now it turns out that the Messiah was God himself in the form of his Son. The two Roles, the two titles, combined together. Some Jews found this hard to accept. They still do to this day. And then we come to the council of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They also use both titles, Messiah and Son of God, when they question Jesus. However, they use the titles differently. It's recorded in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 70, 71, read brilliantly by Sarah. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Then they ask, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. They use this answer as a way of convicting Jesus of blasphemy. Their challenges to Jesus started long ago. But this encounter marks the climax to their opposition to Jesus. Their questions and accusations of blasphemy. Their, sorry, their questions are accusations of blasphemy. A charge punishable by death. This opposition will end with Jesus' crucifixion. What is the source 
of this opposition against Jesus, against Jesus' sonship. Where does it spring from? And of course, there are many answers to this question. It's not an easy question. I'm just going to briefly look at just one thread of this opposition. The Jewish people saw themselves as God's son. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is telling Pharaoh to free the Jewish people from slavery. And God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. So the claim that Jesus is the son of God completely contradicts that deeply embedded assumption that they were the son of God. So that when they question Jesus, they speak with closed minds, closed to the living and prophetic word of God. They saw themselves as heirs to the property God had promised to Abraham, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. They, the land was rightfully theirs. It was their birthright, their inheritance. It was promised to them from of old. In the covenant God made with Abraham, it's written in Genesis 17. I will give to you and to your descendants after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. The Israelites held on to this promise for 2,000 years. It became a defining feature of their existence. They held on to this promise through threat of attack, through war, through invasion and occupation, even exile and the division of a kingdom, of their kingdom. And yet here they were, their land occupied by Rome. The Jews, a proud, ancient people, forced to pay tribute to Rome forced to show respect and honour to a Roman emperor. It must have been abhorrent to them. Life in first century Palestine for the Jewish people must have felt like exile all over again. A broken people, an internal exile, living in a land but not in control of it. A disinherited people, holding on to an unfulfilled promise made thousands of years ago. And if the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah, he would need to be a warrior Messiah to rescue them from Roman rule, to lead them into victory against all their enemies. In the middle of this comes Jesus. He comes preaching that the kingdom of God is close. He tells them to repent of their sins. He tells them and shows them how to be reconciled to God, their heavenly father. And in doing this, he totally redefines, re-establishes Israel's relationship with God and the Jewish idea of the kingdom of Israel.
The Jewish people wanted a homeland, the promised land, complete with borders and a king and laws, a king to rule over them. But Jesus comes talking about a kingdom, not a, Jesus comes not talking about a kingdom of Israel. Jesus comes talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Jesus invites his listeners, both Jewish and Gentile alike, including you and me, to become citizens of God's kingdom and be co-inheritors with Jesus of this kingdom. This is why the Jewish authorities rejected him. Jesus can tell us about this kingdom because he knows it. He is the heir to it. It is his father's kingdom. The kingdom of God. Jesus inherits it because he is the son of God. Preparing this sermon, I've, I've been thinking about the breakup of my parents' marriage all those years ago and how it affected me. I failed in my attempt to reconcile my mum and dad to each other. I was just a boy, confronted with powerful forces totally out of my control. My world felt very unstable. It kind of broke up for a time. And in preparing this sermon, I, I've also thought about Jesus, the Son of God, and how he must have felt about this broken world of sin. A world in which his people were ruled by a foreign empire, people whose spiritual leaders were largely corrupt, and the Jewish people lost in their relationship to God. Jesus must have been torn apart, must have felt awful about it. He wanted to reconcile them as I wanted to reconcile my mum and dad. For Jesus, it wasn't a wish, not really even a desire, but a deeply embedded impulse, an instinct, every part of his being driven to bring healing and reconciliation. That's why he came to earth. That's why the Son of God became the Messiah. I couldn't reconcile my parents, but we know, we know, that Jesus was able to reconcile all people to God. He carried the stamp of majesty, the glory of God in his whole being, and he gave all of that up for us, his life, crucified on a cross to bring us back to God, to make us whole. He could only do this because he was God, the Son of God.